This is the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ramses Alcade, the CEO of Neurable, one of our portfolio companies. On the show, we talk about how Neurable enables users to control computers and even cars with just their brainwaves. We also talk about how doing non-invasive BCI can be more difficult than the invasive techniques we've spent a lot of time discussing on the show. And now, I'm happy to bring you Dr. Ramses Alcade. Ramses, I'm super excited to have you on the show. I don't know if you know this, but you were actually the first Loop Ventures investment. Yeah, I remember you told us that a while back. And one, I'm excited to be on the show. And two, the vision that Loop has is quite an honor to know that you know we were the first company you really believed in. And after seeing some of the other companies you have brought in, I can tell you guys are really trying to change the way everything works in the whole world. I appreciate it. Well, we've obviously, we've known each other for a little while now, but for the audience who is maybe new to Neurable and new to you, would you just start and tell us a little bit about how you got started in neurotechnology and sort of what you're building Neurable today? Yeah. So really my story begins, you know, a long time ago. I've been interested in the neurotech field since I was about eight years old. It all started because my uncle actually got into a trucking accident and he lost both of his legs. And it was a really impactful time in my life. This uncle of mine was an engineer and a scientist. And when that occurred to him and, and they told him that he probably wouldn't be able to walk again, he persevered over that. In the long term, even ended up fixing his own prosthetics and making things happen. And that kind of just left a huge lasting impression to me. And I wanted to start creating devices that could help people who have any type of impairment. And that's really you know, why I did electrical engineering as my undergrad at the University of Washington, focused on prosthetics and machine learning and, and control systems. And what I learned is that the mechanical components and the electrical components are going to continue to get better and better year over year. But the real gap that there was is converting, you know, the brain signal into something that can be used for these systems as input devices. So I did my PhD at the University of Michigan with Dr. Jane Huggins from the Direct Brain Interface Lab. And then from there, I spun out a company called Neurable based off of my PhD work that is basically a company that can interpret brain activity at such a high level that we're able to do real-time analysis and allow for real-time control devices. And I've been lucky enough to use the product. I think I've tried it a few times now and I'm biased, obviously, but I don't say lightly that it is amazing. I was blown away the first time I used it and equally happy the second time. And so for the audience that hasn't been able to experience it yet, how would you describe Nurable's product? The product that you tried, Doug, was very different than the one that was even, you know, when I started my PhD. But really what it is, is it's a headset that you put on a person's head. It used to have about 64 electrodes. I think the one that you tried most recently only had six. But the recent one has six electrodes. They require no gel. And they just basically rest on top of the person's head. And they go through the hair. That signal then gets recorded, sent to the computer. And the computer is where our secret sauce happens. We have a machine learning pipeline that is able to interpret that brain activity, analyze it, and then classify it to determine what type of action you want to provide. From there, you know, we're able to control different devices. We did a full-size Nissan Versa once. You know, we've done some robotic toys. And recently, what we're really seeing as 
being the next frontier for human interaction is augmented reality and virtual reality. And so we're using it in those kinds of devices right now as basically a computer mouse or a keyboard that is hands-free and voice-free. And that really makes itself such a pleasure to use on that technology. And as these sort of AR and VR interfaces evolve, you know, they're really just emerging now. Where do you see your technology kind of fitting in there in the next kind of five-ish years? Like what's the sort of longer term picture look like? The longer term picture is actually something that is a little bit subtle. Most people, when they think about new human computing devices, right now we're so mentally stuck on the computer itself. But as you start going toward devices that become more natural in interaction modalities, AR being a a perfect example of this, you know, you now have your visuals integrated into your actual world. And so with these kinds of technologies, you have to create more natural human interfaces. So for the computer, you know, it was the mouse and keyboard. For the phone, that's a more natural interface. Now you have to actually directly contact it with your hands. And with augmented reality, you need to start using your motion, your eyes, your voice. And one of the key components that's been missing, and that's why augmented reality technology feels so awkward right now still, is human intent. And that's where the brain-computer interface comes in. It allows us to add human intent to the actions that you're taking so that things only happen when you want it to. Information only is given to you when you want it to. And it's able to control the rate of data that's being sent and received from both ends of the control systems. I think the intent is a really important component to developing the new mouse or keyboard where we don't have them. Because if you're doing things in AR, VR, and there's sort of things that you don't want to happen, obviously your user experience degrades and you don't want to use the device anymore. So that's, I think, a really important part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the most overlooked parts of the story at this point. But uh, more and more companies are starting to see this now. And it's really starting this neuroscience resurgence that's occurring right now. It's really cool. Let me dive a little bit into the technical weeds. And one question that I had was, as you think about the opportunities in sort of non-invasive BCI, we've seen companies using sort of different technologies, EEG, which is what you guys use. There's near-infrared, there's fMRI. I'm just curious, could you walk through how you think about the differences across those technologies? Are they all solving the same end problem or do you see them having different use cases? Right now, I see them as having different use cases. The main reason I would say that is because when it comes to EEG, you're able to record brain activity at such a fast rate, but the amount of clarity, the amount of depth that you get of the brain itself is very limited. And so for that reason, you know, it, it can't give you these beautiful brain pictures that fMRI would. And then FNIRS or anything related to that is kind of somewhere in the middle. You know, it gives you greater depth as to what's going on in the brain, but those kinds of systems are much slower. And so when it comes to really visualizing what's happening in the brain, where certain areas are lighting up, that's where you want something that may not necessarily be as fast like FNIRS or fMRIs. And really, you know, understand what's occurring. But when you need something quick, when you want to interact with an object quickly, that's where EEG comes in. And that's at least how we see it on our end. I feel that in the future, some of those things are going to converge. But with EEG, just the physiological signal so much faster. And so that's why our team is working primarily in that area. And for EEG, or maybe even, you know, some of the other technologies as well, obviously, some sort of hardware needs to be integrated into whatever device 
the consumer is using. So how do you think about the hardware changing? You know, you mentioned the six sensor array you guys use now with the dry sensors, but how do you see that changing maybe over the next few years? Yeah. So right now, the changes that are happening, you know, at least internally to our lab are pretty significant. What I would say the big change that's occurring is miniaturization of sensors and increased quality of the sensors themselves, which means that you can use less of them, which means that they can be you know, less spread out. Right now, our system is pretty much like a, an attachment to an HTC Vive, which is a virtual reality system. Uh, it's really bulky. It's really big. It's definitely a lot smaller than any other brain-computer interface system out there, like when you're talking about fMRIs, et cetera, but uh, it's still a fairly big system. What I believe the future is, and at least what my team is really gung-ho on working on, is trying to reduce the surface area to just a few electrodes that fit in the areas where you would put your headsets on or different AR devices on. And so that's really what we're trying to focus on right now. And as you think about the future of how you know these sensors get integrated into and consumer hardware, where do you see the first major growth opportunities for BCI and consumer use? Short term, I see it with some of the head-mounted display developers like LG, HP, Huawei, really these big guys that want to create differentiation. Uh, At first, I see the market opening for EEG-based devices that are for mental wellness that can provide some level input to the user as to where their mental state is. And then that is going to transition once data is collected and more users are on the platform toward user control. Right now, augmented reality is still such a niche thing that it's going to take a while to convert this large group of people. And so companies looking at neuroscience right now are looking to integrate EEG, even if it's just to be a product differentiator. Because in the longer term, they're also going to be able to have that next human interface, that next operating system method, and work that into their roadmap earlier instead of later. I'm curious, as you think about those companies like the HTCs and the HPs that are making the devices, what do you see the sort of pathway for them to ultimately get the hardware integrated? Are they thinking about it now, do you think, or are we still a few years away from seeing meaningful devices that have BCI sensors enabled? Those groups are thinking about it right now. You know, it's one of these things where it probably wasn't on the roadmap five years ago. It wasn't on the roadmap three years ago, but right now they're starting to understand just because of the lack of ways to interact with human intent with these augmented reality and virtual reality systems that they need to start making the strides right now toward integrating brain-computer interfaces. And so they're trying to take a slower and more thought-out approach, and that's why mental wellness is something that's going to become, you know, it's something that you can introduce to a, a mass population very easily. They're starting in that direction, but their end goal is definitely control. That makes sense. I wanted to ask a couple of quick questions just about how you think about non-invasive BCI solutions versus some of the invasive things we've seen. And we've actually, we spent a pretty good amount of time on the podcast talking to doctors that have been experimenting on the invasive side. And I remember way back when we first invested in you guys, I had asked you about some of the other BCI trends and you told me about optogenetics and all these other things I had never heard about and have since learned a lot about. But I'm curious, as you've been building out and sort of pioneering the non-invasive side of BCI, How do you think about 
balancing what's useful in non-invasive versus the invasive stuff and sort of the use cases and opportunities there? That's a great question. Just to give you some background on our tech, uh, we actually started the technology in the lab in an invasive setting. The technology was originally developed for people who use ECOG or electrocardiography, which is where they put sensor pads on top of the brain, basically. So you do have to do some surgery. So really, a lot of this technology started there. And as I did my PhD, I realized that it's going to take a very long time for those kinds of systems to become really usable for a mass public. And so I decided to use the technology you know, in a non-invasive way, which is significantly harder. But you know, the amount of impact that you could have right now can happen much faster. And that's really kind of what our approach has been. We're really big believers in the invasive field. Our technology can both work invasively and non-invasively. And at least what our strategy has been is let's get this technology out now. Let's get this into as many people's hands as we can. Let's change as many people's lives as we can. And then as the invasive technology catches up and is ready to finally start making some strides inside populations that aren't just in laboratories, that's going to be an easier transition for us than going the other way around. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of a lot of what the invasive groups are doing. I fully encourage them to keep doing it. And in, you know, in about 10 years, I think they're going to start to see the fruits of their labor. I wanted to drill in on something you mentioned there. And I think I heard you right. Did you say that you feel that applying the technology to non-invasive solutions right now is harder than the invasive side? Yeah, absolutely. So, just one kind of high level example, you know, right now, if you want to control a device in real time and you're not using our platform, it can take months of training to get it to work. And in addition to that, you know, you need to calibrate often and it works very slowly and unreliably. When it comes to an invasive system, yeah, it, you know, it's going to take surgery, which is the part that is pretty awful, but, you know, you can get it working you know, after about a month of training and you do have to recalibrate, but once you get it down, you have a very high level of control and levels of control much higher than what can be done on a non-invasive system. But when it comes to very simple tasks, much lighter tasks like typing, like you know, clicking on objects, interacting in VR and AR, those simple tasks can be done with non-invasive systems. And that's really what our company really focuses on. So how do we make these systems so fast and easy to use non-invasively that you know you would prefer not to get surgery to do it and you would still be able to take advantage of these new computing devices in a very natural and intent-driven way? It's sort of counterintuitive, I think, in that most people, when you talk about obviously having surgery, they assume that the level of difficulty sort of increases because of that. But I think you make a really interesting point, which is without doing it, avoiding the hardest part, I guess you could say, makes the non-invasive stuff. There's a layer of complication that gets added to that. It's really interesting. And the difficulties come in different areas. You know, obviously surgery is difficult. You know, there's a lot of sensor difficulties and maintaining long-term use difficulties that happen with invasive systems. When it comes to raw performance, trying to get higher performance from a non-invasive system is significantly more difficult. Obviously, everything, they're all levers, right? One system is easier for other things, but harder in other areas. And so you kind of have to figure out which balance you want to go for. Everything's always a trade-off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me shift gears to another topic, which is obviously very important right now, which is privacy. 
And I'm curious, how do you think about sort of data privacy as it comes to BCI? And, and what do you think the ultimate industry standards will be there? When it comes to non-invasive systems, I personally don't think there's any privacy issues that are there. You can get so little information about a person that's actually identifiable, and it's more focused toward control. You know, when you're talking about more emotional states, affective states, that's where it can be, you know, people can feel a little bit uncomfortable. But the thing is, that information doesn't need to go to, you know, a larger database or anything like that. A lot of the systems that exist right now can all be internally based and can be used as mental wellness devices, et cetera. And, and you see that right now too. So in those areas, I personally don't think there's any privacy issues. When we're talking about invasive systems, that's where all the science fiction thoughts of privacy and where your brain are going to go actually have some truth to it. At least right now, you know, there's a neuroethics society. I've been fortunate enough to be connected with them and also the BCI society, uh, which is my mentor, Dr. Jane Huggins is the chair of, you know, they do a lot of work on trying to create guidelines moving forward that BCI groups and companies should follow in order to make sure that at least on the invasive end, we protect people's privacy more so than, you know, a lot of, a lot of companies do right now with data. But to finally get to that level of invasiveness, you know, there's still many, many, many years left before we can get to that level. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let me ask you just our kind of final question. It's always a fun question. What is your favorite neuroscience related book that you'd recommend everyone listening should read? That is a good question. So I wouldn't call this a neuroscience related book, but it has neuroscience in it. And I think it's a book that really will stretch people's thoughts as to where the technology could go. It's called Pattern Master by Octavia Butler. It's an incredible book because it really touches on how biology itself can be used as a form of control and how that adaptability and interaction itself can be a method for how you restructure society. It's kind of trippy. It's kind of dystopian in a way, but it's a very, very good book. Sounds like a great recommendation. I definitely want to read it. I'm always amazed. We have yet to have the same book recommended twice on the show. It's a good um, problem to have. <laughs> absolutely is. Well, Rams, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're obviously super excited about what you're doing, and I hope everyone listening, check out Neurable. And talk to you soon, Ramses. Take care. Bye.